Genesis chapter 18. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at the life, we've looked at the purpose and the plan of a man named Abraham. Well, God changed his name, you remember. He was Abram. He was out wandering in his own. He was there with his family, and yet God spoke into his life with purpose, and God changed his life, and he changed his character, and he changed his name. And now we see Abraham. And we've constructed a picture, perhaps, of his life over the last few weeks. We've seen a man that has ups and he has downs. But let me tell you, in those moments where you see his victories, you are just impressed. You have to be. I mean, he is a man's man. You might even call him a warrior at some point because he indeed leads military battles. He indeed demonstrates faith among so much. He, he is a military warrior. He is a faith warrior. Some of us would love to be those kinds of men and even those kinds of women. But I want you to see today a different side of Abraham. Not just a military warrior, not just a faith warrior, but I want you to see a man who is a prayer warrior. Now think a moment about that. A prayer warrior. Usually when we're talking about warriors and we're talking about heroes and we're talking about just a man's man, we don't necessarily allow prayer to enter the conversation. Most of the time we think about prayer being in a different dimension, and maybe even accomplished by different kinds of people. And yet, what you see in the scripture today, I think, is evidence that Abraham was a prayer warrior, and it is a challenge for us. I want you to look in chapter 18, verse 23, it says, And Abraham came near and said, Would you, talking to God, he says, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place? and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Here Abraham comes before God, and obviously he is praying for the city of Sodom. We'll look at that more in depth in a moment. But I want you to hear his prayer. I want you to hear how he calls out to God in such a way. And he says, God, would you destroy the righteous among the wicked? Would you, God, be willing to do such a thing? Now, that would seem very presumptive for some of us. I mean, to go before God and to ask such a question or to even approach God in such a way. I mean, think about it a moment. Here you have the God of heaven and Abraham comes before him. And he prays to him, if you will. He speaks to him and he says, God, would you please spare the city of Sodom? I mean, that would be presumptive for many of us because we think to ourselves, why in the world or how in the world could we come before a holy God in such a way? Now, I want you to see today as we look at this passage that this prayer, that it grew out of the experience of Abraham. It grew out of his knowledge of God. It grew out of his respect of God. As a matter of fact, if you look at this passage, you'll understand that for Abraham, prayer itself grew out of a relationship with God. 
Now, I love this passage, chapter 18. I mean, it just speaks about God's friendship with Abraham. If you were to go back to the very first verses of this chapter, you would see that there were three men that were walking along. They're not initially identified for us. It says Abraham looks up and he sees these three men and he runs toward them and he uh, invites them to uh, drink water. He invites them to come back to his house. These three men. The identity of these three men are later identified in the scripture. The three guys, three individuals that is, God himself and two angels. Now think about that a moment. God himself and a couple of angels. Somehow, a manifestation of God. Some people think it's a pre-incarnate state of Christ. Maybe uh, before his incarnation, Jesus had made this appearance. All we know is that God had appeared in a certain way, and two angels were there, and they come before Abraham, and, and they come back to his tent. And, and he, he goes in, you can imagine this, here's God, you're entertaining him, you're entertaining these angels. You look at Sarah you say, Sarah, do whatever you can. Get some meals together. Uh, actually, make some of those little cakes you make. Those three little, make some of those little cakes you always make. That uh, they're outstanding. They go over with everybody that comes in. Make those cakes. Actually, in the Hebrew, if you were to study those cakes and look at them, actually, they would correspond to our lemon ice box pies today. Now, Dr. Farrington, don't go back to New Orleans Seminary and tell them I said that, okay? I might be blacklisted. But according to my translation of it, he says, go back and you make lemon ice box pies. Now, he didn't put the meringue on it at that point. They didn't know what that was until later on. But he says, I want you to go and I want you to, to get this together. And they come, look, they come to the tent. Look, God and these two angels come into the tent of Abraham and Sarah. And they begin talking to him, talking to him about the plan that he has. Isn't this awesome? I mean, remember, verse 23 is in the context of the whole chapter. Abraham crying out to God in such a way and praying to God, it is in the context of his relationship with God. I mean, God now has come to the very tent of Abraham. And there is a friendship that is here. Actually, you're here referred to Abraham, the friend of God. He speaks to him as friend to friend. That relationship that God had begun in his life many, many years before that God had begun in his life had developed into a true friendship. And you know what? Before you approach God and before I approach God, before we even enter into a state of prayer in our lives... We have to know that it's based upon a relationship with him. I mean, that is the only way that we could come before a holy God the way we do and speak to him and cry out to him is because we have a relationship with him. Again, the picture of God, these two angels, sitting in the very tent of Abraham, fellowshipping together, talking together, eating together, this act of communion. There's something around about being able to just kind of sit together and uh, maybe enjoy a meal or just talk. There's, there's an intimacy that is built even through those kinds of moments, right? I remember years ago, Dr. Argel Smith said that he did not think it was an accident or a mistake that God would choose something 
like a meal, the Lord's Supper we call it, for us to be able to break bread and to communicate the fellowship, the friendship, the communion we have with one another. Because there is something special about breaking bread together, about sharing a meal together, about talking to one another over that meal. How many friendships have been built over those opportunities? And here, God and these angels, as they are there talking to Abraham about his plan, about his life, about the promise that's going to be realized in his life, that friendship and that relationship continues. Now look, if you're friends, that means you talk to one another, right? If you have a friendship, you're going to talk to that other person. And it's going to be more than surface level talk. I mean, lately we've had a lot of opportunity for surface level conversation. You know what I'm talking about? Surface level conversation? Man, it's been raining a lot. It's been raining. I mean, it has given us a topic of conversation every day. Leslie and I went for a couple days over to Dallas and never been to Dallas before. Um, It's a great place, great place, good place to have a seminary, not as good as New Orleans, but it's a great place over in Dallas. Wonderful time, but our parents would call us all the time. Our parents don't think we have sense to get out of the rain. So they call us just to see if we're out of the rain. How's it going? All the rain, all the other things, we've had all kinds of conversation, surface-level conversation. But you know what? When you develop a friendship with somebody, it goes beyond conversations about the weather. Friendship does. goes beyond conversations about these surface-level things. You get down to talking about more intimate topics. For example, God talking to Abraham about the child that will be born. And then in verse 16, it says that the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. In other words, when they were leaving and get this, notice how this all grows again out of the relationship that God has with Abraham and the relationship Abraham has with God. It says in verse 17, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have known him in order that he may command his children, his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So get this. God says, why should I not tell Abraham what I'm doing? Why? Because I have a relationship with Abraham. Abraham's my friend. Abraham, I have chosen to be a great nation. I'm going to bless his descendants through him. I'm going to use him. So why would I not reveal to him what I'm going to do? So I want you to see that this whole conversation, this whole context of chapter 18 is rooted in a relationship that God has with Abraham and Abraham has with God. You see, and prayer has to begin there. I mean, if you're going to pray, it has to begin with that relationship that you have with God. I mean, what is prayer? Prayer is simply talking to God. We can make it 
out to be so many other things. We, we can try to define it in so many other terms. But when it comes down to it, prayer is just simply talking to God. When I pray, I am pouring my heart out to Him. I'm talking to Him. And hopefully, as I pray and as I meditate, He speaks to me through His Scriptures, through His own ways. God speaks. But it begins with a relationship. If your prayer life, listen to me, if your prayer life, well, if it seems to be barren, what I would ask yourself, have you to ask yourself is what, how is your relationship with God? Because your prayer life is connected to the overall relationship you have with the God above. God and Abraham had a friendship. They had a relationship. Abraham, friend of the holy God, the awesome God of the universe. So Abraham knew that as he was calling out to God, he understood he had a relationship. So for Abraham, prayer grew out of a relationship with God. Well, for Abraham, prayer also, prayer also grew out of the revelation that he received from God. Now get this. His prayer grew out of that revelation from God. In verse 20 after God says why should I not share this with Abraham he says and the Lord said because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me and if not I will know and then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom but Abraham still stood before the Lord so they said, we're going to tell Abraham what we're going to do. God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down and I'm going to launch this divine investigation against Sodom and Gomorrah. An outcry has come to me. I have heard the cry. I have heard of their very great sin. By the way, the terminology here reminds you of the days of Noah. When everything, the sin itself was very great. The terminology here reminds you even of the divine investigation against Babel where God comes down to see what the people are about. And what God says to Abraham is, I'm going to go down there. I'm launching a divine investigation and I'm going to see if what I am hearing is true. Now, did God know whether it was true or not? Yes. Absolutely. But he sends these angels down once again to demonstrate his grace and his mercy, but also to demonstrate his justice and his holiness. They go down to see what is happening. In Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin was very, very great. Now, if you read uh, through these passages, you'll see that Sodom and Gomorrah, both of those cities, were cities of great economic prosperity. I mean, Lot had chosen this area to live because it offered much fortune. It had great prosperity, these cities did. And yet, both cities were entrenched in their sin. 
If you read throughout uh, the Old and New Testaments, you begin to put a picture of that sin together. You understand that, yes, they had prosperity, but they were neglecting some of the most vulnerable of the society, if you read what the prophets say about them. You'll also see, as you continue to read through these narratives, that it would become known for its sexual immorality. So get this, social injustice, sexual immorality, running rampant through these cities. And God says, I'm going down. And basically the inference here, as Abraham understands it, is that he will deal with that sin. The revelation of God specifically, that God will deal with that sin. You see, God revealed his plan, but God also revealed his character to Abraham. What do you mean by that? We serve what we call a holy God. You've heard me mention that already this morning, right? We serve a holy God. What does the word holy mean? Well, it means different means unique, means set apart, totally unlike us. By the way, I'm pretty proud that we serve a God that's not like us. I'm pretty proud he's not prone to my failures and my attitudes and my heart. I'm proud he's not like me in any way. He's a holy God, different. He's set apart, yes, Positionally, he's far above us in a sense, but he is set apart morally as well, this God we serve. What do I mean by that? I mean, this is a God that always does what is right. Understand, even as you read this conversation, this prayer of Abraham, and some people say how Abraham questions the righteousness of God here. Understand, Abraham never questions the righteousness of God. As a matter of fact, Abraham assumes that God will always do the right thing in this passage. Because the holy God we serve, that God which is morally superior to any of us, he always does what is right. And he always affirms those things that are good and noble and pure. That's the God we serve, right? So get this. If he is a holy God, then that means he has to deal with sin he has to he cannot allow sin to continue on and on and on for eternity without it being dealt with he he can't do that not as a holy good glorious god that he is he can't allow sin to just repeat itself over and over and over without something happening so get this about the character of god what is revealed of him That this holy God comes and he says, I hear what's happening. There is an outcry from the city. Those who are being oppressed, those who are seeing this immorality, then in a sense there is a groaning, there is a cry to a holy God. And God says, I've got to go down and I've got to do something about this. And then you see Abraham's prayer. God God, would you destroy the whole city or the cities even if there were righteous people there? God has to deal with sin. Now, my friends, I'm going to tell you that 
I've not necessarily received a special revelation of the next location of God's judgment and wrath. Did you hear me today? Don't go away from this place and say, well, you know what? I heard Brother Reggie say this morning that Los Angeles is doomed. I didn't say that. Didn't say that at all. I'm not one to go around and talk about this is the city and that place. And I, but I can tell you the revelation that we received from God. The general revelation. The general revelation is the character of God does not change. So what does that mean? Well, God is still holy. He's still set apart. He's still different. And because God is morally superior and God is morally upright, he still has to deal with sin. Even this day. Even this day, he still has to deal with sin. And thus, judgment, wrath, well, it's still very much a part of our existence. Still to this day. I've said time and time before that God will deal with sin in one or two ways. He will deal with it in judgment or he will deal with it through his son, the Lord Jesus. You'd say it this way. That the judgment either falls upon the sacrifice or upon the sinner. Right? It either falls upon the sinner, that one which is responsible, or upon the sacrifice, the one who's assumed the responsibility for us. God still has to deal with sin. One way or the other. Your sin, other sin, God has to deal with it. That is still the revelation of God. In our prayer, when we come before God, somehow our prayer should bear out that revelation that we've received. That God is a holy God and that he has to deal with sin. Our prayer should reflect that attitude and that revelation. For Abraham, prayer grew out of not only the relationship that he had with God, that he knew he could come before God and just talk to him, and not only from the revelation that he had received from God, but also Abraham in verse 23, when you hear him speak, you know that he understands that prayer grows out of his request of God. In other words, his heart, his concern. When he speaks here, he's just speaking his heart and his concern, isn't he? You know, when we come before God and we come before him only through the blood of Christ as believers, remember, the access has been granted to us. When we come to him, we come praying and recognizing his holiness and recognizing his work in our lives. And then we just simply share our request in our heart. We share who we are. I think we have to be authentic when we come before God. I think we just share what is natural to us, what is upon our heart and the burden of our heart. Uh, sometimes we begin our prayers and we end our prayers almost in a state of pretense, if you will. I mean, we kind of come before God and we're like, God, okay, here we're good and everything's fine. And God... We almost even change our tone sometimes, do we not? 
But God knows who we are better than we know ourselves. When we come before God, there's no need to hide our heart, but rather it is appropriate for us to open our heart. So what's on Abraham's heart? The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's upon his heart, his concern. Now, yes, I have a feeling he's concerned about a man named Lot. Aren't you? I believe he's partially concerned about a man named Lot. Remember his nephew? His nephew that he had allowed to come with him to share of the blessing of the family. His nephew who had departed and chosen his own way. His nephew who had not only pitched his tent toward Sodom, but now was dwelling in Sodom. His nephew who he had rescued in this great military enterprise. Lot. He's living down there in Sodom. And he comes before God and he says, God, would you destroy, destroy the righteous along with the unrighteous? Would you destroy them? Lot's there. God, would you hear my prayer? When was the last time you prayed for the Lot in your family? Or the Lot that you count as a friend? When was the last time? When was the last time it was upon your heart? When was the last time you were burdened and you were concerned about the prayer, about the heart for this individual? Lot was there. And if there were no intervention, it would appear that he would be destroyed. Well, it didn't stop there with Lot, though, did it? I mean, really, as you read down, his concern was for the whole city. I mean, he's, he's trying to so, save the whole of the city. Because if he hadn't, he could have just said, Hey, God, would you just get Lot out of there? And I'll tell you, there have probably been times in my life that i prayed something like that before. God, you just take Lot out of Sodom and then just destroy Sodom. I probably prayed something like that. I admit that. But that's not Abraham. Abraham prays that somehow God will save this city. That he was served, that somehow he would work his own will in their lives. I ask you again, when have you prayed for the lost souls? of a city, of a country, of this world. You know, we do pray sometimes what's upon our heart. But a lot of times what's upon our heart is basically things that affect us, affect us materially, emotionally, those things that affect us. And I'm not saying to you that that's wrong. I say, I just earlier stated that it's fine for us to pray what is upon our heart, right? Uh, it's fine to pray, God, 
We're going through a tough time and we need some help. It's fine to pray that. There are times that you may be facing some financial issues in your life. And it's fine for you to say, God, I need some, I need some assistance here. God, I need you to take charge and provide the resources. That's fine. That's fine. But I want to say to you that God, as he looks into us and as he works within us, we should be hoping and praying that he would move our heart beyond ourselves. Instead of a me, me, me prayer, that it would be about others, especially those who stand in the need of salvation. Because I cannot go around and tell you every city that, well, is about to face imminent destruction. But I can tell you this, that there are many, many places in our state and in our nation and in this world, many places that could find themselves described as a modern-day or contemporary-day Sodom. And my friends, the holy God that we serve, well, at some point, in some way, he has to deal with that sin. And I believe it is up to us as believers. It is up to us as modern-day, contemporary-day Abrahams who go before God and say, God, would you hear our prayers? And God, would you deliver And God, would you work? Now, you think Abraham was presumptive in verses 23 through 25. Just continue reading down. Verse 26 says, So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abram answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of this city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I'll not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there would be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let it not the Lord be angry and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Do any of you kind of come to this passage and hear Abraham's prayer and his request and almost respond in the sense of what audacity, what audacity that Abraham would speak to God in such a way. Friends, when your heart gets burdened and concerned for those that are under the judgment of God, it will lead you to a place to where you're not concerned about all of the rituals. You'll not be concerned about all the formalities. What you'll do is just go before God and you'll plead with God for the souls of those who are lost. Persistence. Persistence. Jesus told a story about persistence in Luke chapter 5 when he spoke about 
the man that comes to the door at midnight? You know your neighbor, he says. Your neighbor comes to the door at midnight and he beats on your door, he says. And he says, please give me three loaves because I have a friend who showed up. Now, who in the world would show up at midnight at your house? But he says, I need three loaves. To which you respond, Jesus says, go on back to bed. I've been asleep. My door is locked. My children are in bed. Go away. And it says that the friend continues to knock and persist. And Jesus said that that man gets what he asked for, not just simply because he's a friend, but because of his persistence. That's what Jesus said. You hear a little bit of that here? Abraham just persisting with God. He is there upon his heart. Our children learn that at a young age, do they not? The art of persistence. You thought it was kind of just that keeping on, keeping on. You thought it was just annoyance. But they know. Mama, can I go over to so-and-so's house? We'll talk about that later. Mama, can I go over to so-and-so's house? I don't know about Mama, can I just get out of here? Persistence. I say to you that our hearts ought to be concerned about those who are lost, and we ought to persist about praying for them. We ought to persist. I will tell you this morning, there are family members that from day to day I've almost given up on. Then I grow convicted that God has not called me to give up on them because he never gave up on me. Praying, asking God to work, praying for the cities. You know, for the first time in the history of our world and the history of our nation, there are more people living in the cities today than in the rural areas. Do you remember... Do you recognize how many people are lost in the cities of our United States of America? This summer we have teams who are going to Los Angeles and West Palm Beach and Chicago and Washington, D.C. and even here in our state to a place called Galliano. We ought to be praying that God would work we ought to be praying for the cities of Delhi and Managua. We ought to be praying for the cities of Budapest, for the cities that we find all around this world, who, my friends, outside of the hope and the promise of Jesus Christ, are bound for an eternal hell. We ought to be praying. We ought to be burdened. We ought to be concerned. Abraham, he prayed out of his relationship with God. He prayed from his revelation that he had received. And he had prayed out of that request, that heart that he had. And I say to you this morning, God has called us to pray for the city. Begin here. Rustin. Take it across the United States. And pray for our world that we would see God's judgment restrained until salvation could come. Remember what Jesus said when he spoke about his coming? 
As Peter described it, Peter said that that this coming of Christ, it had been delayed just a little bit because that he, w- he wasn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. May we be obedient to pray and to go and to be his witnesses in the cities. May we take them for him, for his glory, and for his honor. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would just be with us this morning. And Father, I pray that you would give us a heart now, a burden, a spirit of an intercessor, Lord, here in this place. And that today we would call out to you and we would ask for your forbearance, for your grace, for your mercy. God, we may read this scripture and we may grow, Lord, we may grow... uh, disheartened because we know that these cities were destroyed but God we know that there were some saved Lot and his daughters God I'm convinced today it's because of Abraham's prayer that even they were saved and God I pray that you would just do a work among the cities of our nation of our world the cities of our state And that, God, we would see revival and renewal and we would see people come to know you. Lord, fall fresh upon us. Fall fresh upon our cities. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we have this time of invitation?